Welcome, friend, to another episode of Falling Asleep with a Good Book. I appreciate you allowing me to join you for this important part of your day. It's special, and I know that. That part of the day where we leave our busy day and all the things we accomplished and all the things still on our to-do list behind. Take a nice deep breath. Hold it while you think of one great thing that happened today. Now let it go. Take another deep breath and feel your body getting heavier and just sinking into the mattress or chair where you're relaxing. Exhale slowly. Now, let's relax together and enjoy a new book while you drift off to sleep. Tonight, we will be reading the conclusion of Edgar Allan Poe's The Murderers in the Rue Morgue, and that will be parts four, five, and six. So relax, close your eyes if you like, and let yourself feel heavy. And here we go. Murderers had come to the old house on the street called the Rue Morgue. Murderers had come and gone and left behind the dead bodies of an old woman and her daughter. The daughter's body was in the bedroom on the fourth floor. The old woman was lying outside behind the house, her head almost cut off, but the knife which killed her was up in the bedroom on the floor. The door and the windows were all firmly closed, locked on the inside. There was no way for anyone to go in or out. 
Voices had been heard. One voice was speaking in French, and the other voice had not spoken even one word that anyone could understand. But there was no one in the room when the police arrived. This much we had learned from the newspapers, my friend Dupain and I. Interested by it, we had gone to look at the house and the bodies. Dupain was now explaining to me what he had learned there. That is what we learned from the newspapers. Please remember it, for that much was enough to tell me what I must look for when we were in the house on the room work. And I found it. Let us now take ourselves again, in our thoughts, to the room where the murders were done. What shall we first look for? The way the murderers escaped. All right, we agree. I am sure that we do not have to look for anything outside of nature. For anything not having a real form, a body. The killers were not spirits. They were real. They could not go through the walls. Well, then how did they escape? There's only one way to reason on the subject, and it must lead us to the answer. Let us look one at a time at the possible ways to escape. It is clear that the killers were in the room where the daughter was found. From this room, they must have escaped. But how? At first, I saw no way out. It had been necessary for the neighbors to break down the door in order to enter the room. There was no other door. The opening above the fireplace is not big enough, near the top, for even a small animal. The murderers, therefore, must have escaped through one of the windows. Well, this may not seem possible. We must prove that it is possible. There are two windows in the room. Both of them, you will remember, are made of two parts. To open the window, one must lift up from the bottom half. One of these windows is easily seen. The lower part of the other is out of sight, behind the big bed. I looked carefully at the first of these windows. It was firmly closed, fastened, like the door on the inside. To keep the window closed, to fasten it, someone had to put a strong iron nail into the wood at the side of the window, in such a way that the window could not be raised. At least it seemed that the nail held the window closed. Well, the nail was easy to see, there it was and the people who discovered the killings used their greatest strength and could not raise the window. Well, I too tried to raise the window and could not. So I went to the second window and looked behind the big bed at the lower half of the window. There was a nail here too, which held the window closed. Without moving the bed, I tried to open the window also, and again, I could not do so. I did not stop looking for an answer, however, because I knew that what did not seem possible must be proved to be possible. The killers, or perhaps I should say the killer, for I am almost certain there was only one. The killer escaped through one of these windows. Of this I felt certain. After the murderer had left the bedroom, he could have closed the window from the outside, but he could not have fastened it again on the inside. Yet anyone could see the nails which held the windows tightly closed. This was the fact that stopped the police. How could the murderer put the nail back into its place? 
perhaps, perhaps if you pulled out the nail, yes, that is just what I thought. Two things seemed clear. First, there had to be something wrong with the idea that the nails were holding the windows closed. I didn't know what was wrong. Something was. Second, if it was not the nails which were holding the windows closed, then something else was holding them closed. Something hard to see. Something hidden. I went back to the first window. With great effort, I pulled out the nail. Then I again tried to raise the window, and it was still firmly closed. Well, this did not surprise me. There had to be a hidden lock, I thought, inside the window. I felt the window carefully with my fingers. Indeed, I found a button, which when I pressed it, opened the inner lock. Well, with almost no effort, I raised the window. Now I knew that the killer could close the window from the outside, and the window would lock itself. But there was still the nail. Carefully, I put the nail back into the hole from which I had taken it. Then I pressed the button and tried to raise the window. I could not. The nail also was holding the window closed. Well, then, then the murderer could not possibly have gone out the window. He could not have gone out that window. Therefore, he must have escaped through the other window. The other window was also held closed by a nail, but I knew I must be right. Although no one else had looked carefully at the window behind the bed, I went to it and tried to see whether the two windows were in some way different. The nail in the second window looked the same as the one I had just seen. I moved the bed so I could closely look at it. Yes, there was a button here too. I was so sure I was right that without touching the nail, I pressed the button and tried to raise the window. Up it went. As the window went up, it carried with it the top part of the nail, the head. And when I closed the window, the head of the nail was again in its place. It looked just as it had looked before. I took the head of the nail in my fingers and it easily came away from the window. I saw that the nail had been broken. But when I put the nail head back in its place, the nail again looked whole. What seemed to be not possible, we have proved to be possible. The murderer indeed escaped through that window. I could see it now in my mind, what had happened. It was a hot summer night. When the murderer first arrived, he found that window open, open to let some of the fresh air from the night come in. Through the open window, the murderer went in and came out again. As he came out, he closed the window, perhaps with the purpose to do so, perhaps by chance. The special lock inside the window held the window firmly closed. The nail only seemed to be holding it closed. And that which was possible looked not possible. Dupain had been talking, not to me it seemed, but to himself. His cold eyes, his cold eyes seemed to see only what was in his own mind. Now he stopped and looked straight at me. 
His eyes were now hard and bright. And I understood that using his unusual reasoning power to find the answer to these bloody murders was giving Dupain great pleasure. At first, I could think only of this. And then I said, Dupain, the windows are on the fourth floor, far above the ground. Even an open window? Yes, that is an interesting question. How did the murderer go from the window down to the ground? Well, once I was quite certain that the murderer had in fact gone through that window, the rest was not so hard to know. And the answer to this question told me still more about who the murderer was. When you and I first came into the house on the Rue Morgue, we walked around the house. At that time, I noted a long, thin metal pole which went from the top of the building to the ground. A lightning rod put there to carry down to the ground a charge of electricity that might come out of the clouds during a bad summer storm. Here, I thought, is a way for someone to go up or down the wall and then to go in or out of the window. He would have to be very strong. Although certain animals could easily go up the pole, not every man could do it. Only a man with a very special strength and special training. This told me more about what the murderer was like. But I still had the question, who? Part 5 That unusual Frenchman, Auguste Dupain, was still explaining to me how he found the answer to the question of who murdered the two women in the house on the Rue Morgue. We now know that it was indeed possible for the killer to go in and again out one of the windows and still leave them both firmly closed, locked on the inside. And I agreed with Dupain when he said that only someone with very special strength and training could have gone up the lightning rod on the side of the house and thus entered the window. But who the murderer was, we still did not know. Let us look again, said Dupain, at the room on the fourth floor. Let us now go back in our minds to the room we saw yesterday. Consider its appearance. Clothes had been thrown around the room, yet it seemed that none had been taken. The old woman and her daughter almost never left the house, but they had little use for many clothes. Those that were found in the room were as good as any they had. If the killer took some, why didn't he take the best? Or take all? And why would he take a few clothes and leave all the money? Nearly the whole amount brought from the bank was found in the bags on the floor. I want you, therefore, to forget about the idea in the minds of the police, the idea that a desire for money was what they call the motive, the reason for the murders. This idea rose in their minds when they heard how the money was brought to the house three days before the killings. But this is only what we call a coincidence. Two things happening at the same time, but only by chance, and not because of any cause. Coincidence happened to all of us every day of our lives. If the gold was the reason for the murders, 
The killer must have been quite a fool to forget and leave it there. No, I don't think the desire for money was the reason for the killings. I think that there was no reason for these killings, except perhaps fear. Now, let us look at the murders themselves. A girl is killed by powerful hands around her neck, and then the body is placed in the opening over the fireplace, head down. No murders we usually hear about are like this. There is something here that does not fit our ideas of human actions, even when we think of men of the most terrible kind. Think also of the great strength which was necessary to put the body where it was found. The strength of several men was needed to pull it down. There are other signs of this fearful strength. In front of the fireplace, some gray human hair was lying, thick pieces of it, pulled from the head of the old woman. Well, you saw the hair on the floor yourself, and you saw the blood and the skin with it. You know, and I know, that great force is necessary to pull out even 20 or 30 hairs at one time. A much greater force is necessary to pull out hundreds of hairs at one time. Also, the head of the old woman was cut almost completely from the body. Why? To kill a woman with a knife, it is not necessary to cut her head off. If now, added to all these things, we add also the condition of the room, we have put together the following ideas. Strength, more than human. Wildness, less than human. A murder without reason. Horror beyond human understanding. And a voice which made no sound that men could understand. What result then have you come to? What have I helped you to see? A cold feeling went up and down my back as Dupaine asked me the question. A man. Someone who has lost his mind, I said. A madman. A madman. Only a madman could have done these murders. I think not. In some ways, your idea is a good one. But madmen are from one country or another. Their cries may be terrible, but they are made of words and some of the words can be understood. Here, look, look at this hair. I took it from the fingers of the old woman. The hair of a madman is not like this. Tell me what you think it is. Dupaine, well this hair is, this is not human hair. I did not say that it is. But before we decide this matter, Look at the picture I had made on this piece of paper. It is a picture of the marks on the daughter's neck. The doctor said these marks were made by fingers. Now let me spread the paper on the table before us. Try to put your fingers all at the same time on the picture so that your hand and its fingers will fit in the picture of the marks on the daughter's neck. I cannot. No. But perhaps we are not doing this in the right way. The paper is spread out and the human neck is round. Here, here is a piece of wood about as big as the daughter's neck. Put the paper around it and try again. Now go on, try it. I tried to put my fingers around the piece of wood as if it were the girl's neck, but still my hand was not large enough to equal the marks left by the killer. Dupain. These marks were made by no human hand. 
they were not. I am almost certain that they were made by the hand of an orangutan, one of those man-like animals that lives in the wild forests. The great size and strength, the wildness of these animals are well known. Now, look in this book by Cuvier. Read. Well, look at that picture. I did so, and at once I knew that Dupin was right in everything he had said. The color of the hair, the size of the hand, the terrible strength, but the wildness of the killings. Those sounds which were a voice, but were not words. Everything fit nicely in its place. No, not everything. Dupin, I said. There were two voices. Who was the second voice? The second voice, yes. Remember, we decided that only someone with a very special kind of strength could have gone up the lightning rods up on the outside of the house to the window on the fourth floor. Perhaps an animal, perhaps a strong man from a circus, perhaps a sailor. We know now that one of the voices was the voice of an animal, an orangutan. The other was a voice of a man. This voice spoke only two words. They were, my God, spoken in French. Upon those two words, I have placed my hopes of finding a full answer to this horrible question. The words were an expression of horror. This means that a Frenchman knew about these murders. It is possible, indeed, probable, that the Frenchman himself did not help the orangutan to kill. Perhaps the animal escaped from him, and he followed it to the house on the Rue Morgue. But he could not have caught it again. It must still be free somewhere in Paris. I will not continue with these guesses, for I cannot call them more than that. If I am right, and if the Frenchman did not himself help with these killings, I expect him to come here. Read this. I paid to have this put in the newspaper. I took the newspaper and I read the following. Caught. Early in the morning of the 7th of this month, a very large orangutan. The owner, who is known to be a sailor, may have the animal again if he can prove it is his. But Dupain, how can you know the man is a sailor? Well, I do not know it. I am not sure of it. I think the man is a sailor. A sailor could go up that pole on the side of the house. Sailors travel to strange, faraway places where such things as orangutans can be got. If I am right, well, think for a moment. The sailor will say to himself, the animal is valuable. Why shouldn't I go and get it? The police do not know that the animal killed two women. And clearly somebody knows that I am in Paris. If I do not go to get the animal, they will ask why. I don't want anyone to start asking questions about the animal, so I will go and get the orangutan and keep it where no one will see it until this terrible thing has passed. This, I believe, is how the sailor will think. But listen, I hear a man's steps on the stairs. Dupain had left the front door of the house open, and the visitor entered without using the bell. He came several steps up the stairs and then stopped, and we heard him go down again. Dupain was moving toward the door when we heard again the steps and the stranger coming up. 
He did not turn back a second time, but came straight to the door of our room. In a strong, warm, friendly voice, Dupain said, Come in, my friend. Come in. Slowly, the door opened, and in came a sailor. Dupain was now certain that the murders in the room morgue had been done by a wild animal of the jungle, the man-like animal known as an orangutan. The animal had escaped from its owner, he thought, and the owner was probably a sailor. He had put a notice in the newspaper that the man who owned the orangutan could have it again if he came to our house to get it. Now, as the owner came to our door, we were both wondering if that man would, as Dupain guessed, be a sailor. Yes, the man who entered was indeed a sailor. He was a large man and strong. He carried a big heavy piece of wood, but no gun. He said to us in French, Good evening. Sit down, my friend. I suppose you have come to ask about the orangutan, a very fine animal. I have no doubt that is very valuable. How old do you think it may be? Oh, I have no way of guessing how old it is. But it can't be more than four or five years old. Have you got it here? No, no, we have no place for it here. You can get it in the morning. Of course, you can prove it is yours? Yes, yes, I can. I wish I could keep it. Oh, I would like to have it. I, of course, I will pay you for finding and keeping the animal. Anything, uh, anything within reason. Well, that is very fair indeed. Let me think. What shall I ask for? Oh, I know. Let this be my pay. Tell me everything you know about the murders in the room morgue. As quietly as he had spoken, Dupain walked to the door, locked it, and put the key in his coat. At the same time, he took a gun out of his coat and placed it on the table. The sailor's face had become red. He jumped to his feet and reached for his stick of wood, but in the next moment he fell back into his chair, trembling. His face became quite white, bloodless. He spoke not a word, his eyes closed. Oh, my friend, you must not be afraid. We're not going to hurt you. I know very well that you yourself are not the killer. But it is true that you know something about him, or about it. From what I've already said, you must know that I have ways of learning about the matter, ways you could never have dreamed of. I know that you yourself have done nothing wrong. Well, you didn't even take any of the money. You have no reason to be afraid to talk and to tell the truth. It is a matter of honor for you to tell all you know. And you know who the killer is. So help me God, I, I'll tell you all I know about this, all I know, but 
I don't expect you to believe one half of what I say. Not one half. Still, I didn't kill anyone, and I'll tell the whole story if I die for it. It was that animal. The orangutan. Well, about a year ago, our ship sailed to the far east, to the island of Borneo. Well, I had never before seen Borneo. The forest, with a jungle, was thick with trees and other plants and hot and wet and dark. But we went, a friend and I. We went into that forest for pleasure. There we saw this orangutan, a big animal. But we were two, and we caught it. We took it with us to the ship. Soon, however, my friend died and the animal was mine. But it was very strong and it caused a lot of trouble. In the end, I brought it back to Paris with me. I kept it in my house, in my own house, carefully locked up so the neighbors could not know about it. The animal had cut one foot badly while on the ship. I thought, I thought that as soon as it got well, I would sell it. I was certain it was of great value. And it was so much trouble to keep, I wanted to sell it soon. On the night of the murders, very late, I came home and found the animal in my bedroom. It had got free. I don't know how. It held up a knife in its hands and was playing with it. I was afraid and I didn't know what to do. When it saw me, it jumped up, ran out of the room and down the stairs. There, it found an open window and jumped it to the street. Well, I followed, never far behind, although I had no hope of catching it again. The animal, with the knife still in its hand, stopped often to look back at me. But before I could come near enough to even try to catch it, the animal always started to run again. It seemed to be playing with me. Well, it was nearly morning, but the streets were still dark and quiet and we passed the back of a house in the room morgue. The animal looked up and saw a light in the open window in a room high above. Well, it was the only lighted window in sight. The animal saw the metal pole and went up it easily and quickly and jumped into the room. All of this didn't take a minute. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I could do. I followed the animal. I too went up the pole, and as I'm a sailor, it, it was easy for me. But the open window was far from the pole, and I was afraid to try and jump. I could see into the room, however, through the other window, which was closed. The two women were sitting there, with their backs to the window. Who can guess why they were not sleeping at that hour of the night? A box was in the middle of the room papers which had been in the box were lying around on the floor. The women seemed to be studying some of these. They did not see the animal which was just standing there, watching, the knife still in one hand. But the old woman heard it and turned her head and saw the animal there, knife in hand, and then, well then I heard the first of those terrible cries. When the animal heard the old woman's cry, it caught her by the hair and slowly moved the knife before her face. The daughter, filled with terror, fell to the floor and remained there without moving, her eyes closed. 
The old woman continued to cry for help, screaming with fear. I think the animal now is as afraid as the old woman was. With terrible force, it pulled out a handful of her hair. And when the woman, covered with blood, tried to run from it, the animal caught her again by the hair, and with one move of its arm, it nearly cut off her head from her body. Throwing down the body, the animal turned and saw the daughter was moving, watching it with horror. But with fire in its eyes, it rushed to the girl, put its powerful fingers around her neck, and pressed them firmly there until she died. When the girl stopped moving, the animal dropped her body to the floor and looked up. It saw my face in the window. It began to run around the room quickly, without purpose. It jumped up and down at breaking the chairs, pulling the bed to pieces. Suddenly it stopped and took the body of the daughter and, as if to hide it, with terrible strength, it put the body up above the fireplace where it was found. It threw the old woman out of the window. All this time, I was hanging from the pole, filled with terror. It seemed I had lost the power to move. But when I saw the animal coming toward the window with the old woman's body, my horror became fear. I went quickly down. I, I almost fell down the pole, and I ran. I didn't look back. I ran. Oh, my God. My God. Well, the chief of police was not happy that the answer to the mystery of the killings had been found by someone who was not a policeman. He said that people should keep to their own business. Oh, let him talk, said Dupain. Let him talk, he'll feel better for it. And he's a good fellow, but he makes things less simple than they really are. Still, people call him skillful and even wise. I think they say that because of the way he explains carefully, fully, something which is not here or there or anywhere, and says, not possible, about something which is right there before his eyes. And that concludes the reading of The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. So glad you let me join you this evening. Now, if you're still with me, take a deep breath and relax. Hold that breath for just a second. Release it slowly and let your body just melt into the bed or chair, wherever you're relaxing. Let everything go. And I hope you'll join me tomorrow night for another episode of Falling Asleep with the Good Book. Good night. <laughs>